So uh, I find um, Christmas kind of a difficult time of the year to deal with because there's, it's a clamorous time, right? There's all kinds of people vying for your attention. There's the people trying to sell you things. There's the Santa Claus people. There's the Grinch people. And there's all these different messages. And unfortunately, the Christmas, the real Christmas message can get pushed under, right? Certainly, if you're in the corporate world, happy holidays is okay, but Merry Christmas, not so much, right? So um, the title of my message is Have a Wonderful Christmas, and I, I really appreciated the way that you put it up on Facebook um, because I think that the thought was wonder-filled Christmas, right? Because we lose the wonder of Christmas too much. And some of it's about your expectations, some of it's about who you're listening to. So we're going to go back to some really basic things and, and look at some of the history prior to um, Mary and Joseph. And then look at what happened with Mary and Joseph in Luke 1 and Luke and Matthew 1 and, and just stop and go, wow. So um, if you will, bear with me. We're going to kind of buckle our seatbelts and we're going to go through a bunch of scriptures. Um, I'm going to start with a brief word of prayer. Father in heaven, um, Avion, Melchihu, our Father, our King, I pray that you would uh, speak to your children's hearts. I pray that you would strengthen me and that you would be pleased with the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips. Father, use them to encourage and lift up and strengthen and teach your children. And I pray that your Spirit would speak to their hearts and draw them to wherever they need to be today. In Jesus' name. So we're going to start way, way back if you would, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. Um, when, it, when we're dealing with Israel, the, the kind of ground zero is the Abrahamic covenant, but we've talked about that before. And, and we're going to look at an addition to the Abrahamic covenant in David's life, uh, the Davidic covenant, also an unconditional covenant and a promise that God gave to David that's very important for this time of the year. So David's near the end of his reign, um, all of his enemies, he has peace with all of his enemies. He's, uh, he's brought the ark to Jerusalem, even though the first attempt was a fiasco because they didn't mind the scriptures. Uh, and there's a real lesson in that. And he's, he's built his palace and he's musing about building God's house. And he talks to Nathan about building God's house. And Nathan's like, do whatever your heart says. And Nathan goes out, and then um, God talks to Nathan. And he's in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus, God talking to Nathan. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, 
I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I have commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David go, Nathan goes back to David and he speaks this. And if you follow the rest of the chapter, David goes in and sits down and basically cries before God because God is being so good to him. So just note a couple of things here. He starts out in the first couple of verses speaking about David's, his, God's speaking to David about his interaction with David in his personal life. David was in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the smallest grouping of the tribe of Judah. We get that from Micah. And he was a shepherd family, which is probably the lowest rung on the social ladder. And David's the youngest child of a big family. So he's like way down. And God takes this lowly shepherd boy, keeping the sheep, riding them back over when they fall on their backs and they can't get up. He's a servant. And God takes them from, from shepherding and raises them up to be king. And he deals with all of his enemies. And he establishes his throne. And he gives him wives and children. And, and he comes to this point and God re reminds him of all that he's done for him. And he, in verse 10, then kind of points back to the Abrahamic covenant. He says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And there's a sense in which that was fulfilled back then, and there's a sense in which it's never been fulfilled because there's a move no more and won't be oppressed, right? We'll get to that in a bit. So there is the, the enduring people and the enduring land promise of Genesis chapter 12. And then he declares to David, since the day that I, uh, time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. David, you're gonna, you want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. And he's not talking about a physical building, he's talking about a dynasty, a royal dynasty. 
When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. So one of David's sons is going to secede him on the throne. We know that later from scripture, that's Solomon. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So Solomon will be established. He will build the house for my name and I will establish his throne. And God doesn't stop there. So Solomon's going to build the house and I'm going to establish his throne forever. Like, this is not only a royal dynasty, it's a royal dynasty that will never end. I will be a father, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And you follow that through the, hot, the prophets and you see that God was true to his word. We'll look a little bit more at that. And then he says, verse 16, your house, your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, the throne shall be established forever. So God tells David in this vision through Nathan three times that this dynasty will be established forever. It's a sure covenant. And David is overwhelmed. So that's the starting point. That's the starting point. And you do, draw, start drawing a line through, through Scripture towards Mary and Joseph. So let's, um, let's flip over to Isaiah 7. And all of this is background for seeing what happens in Mary and Joseph's life that's really important. Now this is a complex passage. I'm not gonna talk about all of it. I'm not gonna talk about all the controversies about how to interpret it. I'm gonna give you my interpretation and we're gonna deal with it as chunks. So let's first read Isaiah 7, the first four verses. Now it came to pass in the day of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it but, it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart, his, the house of David's heart, and Ahaz's heart, uh, and so his heart, Ahaz, and the heart of his people were moved as trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go, meet, go now to meet Ahaz, and you and, you, you and Shirayashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take heed and be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of the smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Samaria and the son of Ramalia. So, um, Uzzah was a good king. Uzzah was a good king all the way to the end. Almost. At the end of his life, he got really proud. He says, I'm going to go burn incense in the temple. And the priests resisted him and he pushed forward and God struck him with leprosy. 
And from there, and then he, as the priests are trying to push him out of the temple, he's like, okay, I'm going to get out of the temple, right? Because he realized what happened to him. God struck him with leprosy, which is, in the Old Testament, is a direct judgment of God. And he lived as a leper to the end of his life. And it says, if you go look in Kings and Chronicles, that Jotham, his son, um, judged Israel. So there's a sense, I believe, and it, it's kind of tricky to follow the line, while he was living in a house on the outside of Israel, he's, not, he, he's cast out because he's a leper, Jotham is reigning, and Jotham is, Jotham is judging. And we're down right now 240 years or so from where David was at 975 B.C., at 735 B.C., and Ahaz, Ahaz, depending on how you want to pronounce it, become, is co-regent with Jotham. And the north, so Syria in the north and the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes have allied together and they start attacking Jerusalem, Judah. And Ahaz is afraid. And, and Syria has now moved its troops into the northern kingdom of Israel, so the army's all there. And not only is Ahaz afraid, or Ahaz afraid, but the house of David, which is Bet David, all of the Davidic house, they're like trees in the wind. They're unsettled. They're swaying back and forth, right? So then... God comes to Isaiah and he says, take your son, Shear Yashub, which means a remnant will return. And that's the only thing that's said about this child in this passage. It's kind of strange. Take your child, go meet him at the fuller's field and, and talk to this, say this to, to Ahaz. Now the field where they go and meet Ahaz is the same field that the army comes from Assyria and mans while they're besieging Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. So they go out to this field, and God's word to Ahaz is, um, take heed, keep silent, do not fear. And then it goes on and it gets into who's who and who's doing what. But God calls these two kings that have aligned burned out cigarette butts in, a, in a effect. They were firebrands, but now they're burned out cigarette butts. They won't prevail. He, he actually says, and we'll skip down and we'll read 7 to 12 and we'll talk about some of this. So in seven, he says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken or shattered so that they will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Ramalia. If you, Ahaz, will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, 
Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask either in the depth of, in the depth, as in the depth of Sheol, or in the heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask the Lord. Uh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So God comes to him with um, Isaiah and his son, and he says, take heed, be silent, fear not. This thing isn't going to come to pass that you're afraid of. In 65 years, the northern kingdom will be shattered to the point where they won't be a people. If you will not, you, Ahaz, will not believe, and it's, it's important to get the pronouns right here. If you, Ahaz, will not believe, surely you will not be established. And then God gives him this tremendously generous offer. Name any sign, whether it's in the depths of Sheol or the heights of heaven, name a sign so that you will believe. And Ahaz had already reached out to Assyria before this. He was trying to ally with Syria against those two kings. They were trying to force him to align with them against the rising king of Assyria. So Ahaz has a political plan. So he says to the Lord, I will not ask. I'm not going to test the Lord, which sounds really pious. But what it is, is I don't want the Lord involved in my life. Because, see, Jotham took all that was good from Uzziah's reign and he did those things. And Ahaz was just the opposite. Everything that was bad about Uzziah, that was Ahaz. Ahaz was burning incense on, on the hills. Ahaz was going down to the valley of Hinnom, which becomes Gehenna, or Gehenom, right? It's the valley of the ever-burning fire. And he's like, I don't want to test the Lord, but the Lord just commanded you to say a sign so he can fulfill it so you can know. Oh, no, no, no. And the, then this whole conversation switches. So let's read the next several verses, um, 13 through 15. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. So now it's not hear now Ahaz. It's hear now Bet David. Is it a small thing for you, plural, to weary men? But will you, you, plural, weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse evil and to choose good. That's a little cryptic. But God is now not talking to Ahaz. He's talking to the whole royal dynasty. All of the house of David. Are you going to weary me like you weary men? Fine. 
I'll give you a sign. And it's like Isaiah was seeing a vision. He basically says, behold, the virgin, pregnant. And there's a lot of controversy over that word. In the Hebrew, it's Alma, which means a young maiden, which doesn't necessarily mean virgin directly, but it's a young pubescent girl of marrying age. And it always has this concept of virginity as a, a, a virtuous woman. But when they want to be explicit in the Hebrew, they put other words in there. But interestingly, when the rabbis translated it into the Greek in the Septuagint, they chose the word that was without compromise, virgin. So that's an interesting point. Now, does this have double, double fulfillment? That's where the controversy is. I'm not going to get to that. But the sign is, behold, the virgin pregnant. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this child is going to be a sign to the house of David that God is with them. Now, the, the ground of this, God is coming to Ahaz to remind him of the Davidic covenant. He's thinking not only is the northern kingdom going to be conquered, but they're going to unseat the house of David and put in their own puppet king. Now, can that happen when God promises that that dynasty will reign forever? No. So there's the sign. And curds and honey make you think he's going to have a glorious childhood, but essentially that's what you eat when you're oppressed by a foreign nation and they're taking all your crops. So you're going to be in an oppressed situation when this happens, and this young child is going to be eating whatever they can get their hands on, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. So he's going to be in a poor situation, a bad situation, when the child comes. And, and the child is going to come from a virgin. And then it's, it flips back to Ahaz. So we'll read 16 and 17. For the child shall come, shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, the land that you, singular dread, will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days, um, father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So he switches back to the singular. There's a switch back to talking to Ahaz in the passage. And, and I believe that he says, and the child, and, and there's Sherar Yashub, a remnant shall return. And Isaiah probably good, and the child will, know to choose, will not know to choose evil or good when all these things will start happening. And it actually, if you follow the next chapter, there's another prophecy for another child of Isaiah 
that's leading to all kinds of judgment. So God switched from offering Ahaz blessing because of his response to saying judgment's coming on you, on your house, on this people. Such that it, it will... It hasn't been this bad since the ten tribes of Israel seceded because of Solomon's son. And there was war between the tribes. So there's the, there's the bottom line, the, the, the foundation of, of history. So from here, there's a lot more said in Isaiah about Messiah that we're not going to get to today. There's lots of judgment that comes. Everything is fulfilled here. The northern kingdom is um, invaded by Assyria. Syria and the northern kingdom are, are invaded by Assyria, taken over, and Assyria in waves deports almost all of the Jewish people from the northern kingdom and, and imports foreigners to inhabit the land. They are a shattered people. And then as you go through, Jeremiah tells Judah, you know, receive Babylon, go with Babylon, because Babylon comes in because the, the Judean kingdom is not godly. They're, they're into a, idolatry. And eventually Babylon deports and exiles Judah and burns the city and destroys the temple. And then after that, at the end of Malachi, there's this statement that Elijah's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And then there's 400 years of silence. God's not talking to Israel at all. So there's the backdrop to the first Christmas, right? Now turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, or Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry. Let's read 26 to 29. We'll re read this in sections. We're now 730 years forward from where we were just talking about Ahaz, somewhere around 76 BC. That's based on the fact that Herod in history is said to have died in 4 BC, and whoever did the, the calendar redo didn't quite get it right. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, sixth month, Six month of what? Oh, ahead of this, the whole thing was Zechariah and Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same angel, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, and it's very particular in the Greek, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Miriam, or Mary. And having come in, the angel says to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So, a couple points. Gabriel's the messenger, same messenger with Zechariah. He goes to Nazareth. Matthew calls Nazareth a city. Well, not so much, but the next uh, word that they could use is, is a village, which is much smaller. So it's kind of in between 
a village in a city, kind of like a town. It's not big, right? To a virgin, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. So you need to understand that um, marriage in Israel is a big thing, right? Here's how it works. The father or friend of the groom-to-be and the groom look for a virtuous woman. And the father or the friend go with the son to that woman's father. And they hammer out a contract. There's a dowry paid. And and the man and the woman, the, the bridegroom and the bride, are betrothed. They are legally bound like husband and wife, except they don't live together and there's no sexual relationship yet. There's this waiting period. And the waiting period happens for a couple of reasons. One, because the groom is going to go build a place for him and his family. Usually he would build a room a, a on his father's estate, right? And to live, and they'd have their privacy. So that takes time. And he needs to establish himself so he can support the family. And then there's the whole matter of the virtuous woman. And we want to wait to make sure she's a virtuous woman. So they're probably going to wait at least nine months. So she's betrothed. And... It's like marriage. There's only two ways out of this. Either there's a divorce, he gives her a get, or there's stoning. So she's betrothed to this man, also of the house of David. She's from the house of David, so she's part, they're both part of Bit David, David, right? That the prophecy was spoken to. So, and having come in, the angel says to her, so her angel shows up at her door. I don't know if she thought it was a normal human being or not. Usually when an angel shows up, people are pretty fearful. And they, they always say, do not fear, right? So he starts out, rejoice, or start having joy. Highly favored one. And then he says, the Lord is with you, which is like the singular way of saying Emmanuel. Blessed are you among all women. And when she saw him, she was troubled. (laughs) Like, what are you doing in my doorway? And she's thinking, considering, what kind of greeting is this? So she expresses confusion. And he sees this, and and we'll go into the next section, verses um, 30 to 34. Then the the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. There's the, the key phrase. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be called Jesus, or Yeshua. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? So he says, don't be afraid. 
which is that signature line that you seem to see whenever angels are involved, you have found favor or blessing with God. And he basically points, says to her, the text of Isaiah 7.14 and part of the, Davi the Davidic covenant. You're going to conceive and bear a son, the Messiah. You are the virgin that Isaiah was talking about. You're going to bear a son. He's going to be given the throne of his father David. There hasn't been a Davidic king for a long time now. And he's going to rule over Jacob forever. In him, the Davidic kingdom's going to be fulfilled. And Mary's response is, Unlike Zechariah, who wanted a sign and got a sign that he didn't anticipate being mute until John was born, she doesn't ask for a sign. She's just like, how can this be? I haven't known any, a man. And this is, that's, a, that's the gnosko end, the sexual end of gnosko. I haven't had sexual relations. How can this be? How can I get conceive a child? How can I have a, uh, a birth a child? I'm not involved with anybody. I'm betrothed. So the next section, 35 to 38. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, Gabriel answers her question. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. That Greek term is used in all transfiguration accounts when the cloud came over the disciples and overshadowed them and they fell down in fear hearing the voice of Hashem. Right? And that's all he says. But there's no concept of sexuality towards the maiden, the virgin. Some miraculous thing's going to happen to you. This is kind of like the Shekinah glory is going to inhabit your womb. And then he gives her a sign. Elizabeth, your cousin, has been pregnant for six months. This is new news to Mary, which is clear to me that Mary and Elizabeth didn't live close together. She who is called barren now is a child. Does that remind you of anyone in, in the Old Testament? Huh? Like Sarah? For, for with God, nothing is impossible. He can do whatever. So Mary responds to him, Behold, that same behold that Isaiah used, which means see or look. Behold, and she says, Hey, dule. Curion, 
the bondservant of the Lord. That was her response. To quote a previous sermon, Mary essentially said, Hineni, here I am. And she submits. And the angel leaves. And if you follow the story further, she goes. She, she departs where she is. She goes to Elizabeth. And wonderful things happen when they first meet. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps at the presence of the Christ child in Mary's womb. And she stays there. And I can't figure out if it's almost all the way to the birth of John the Baptist or just after the birth of John the Baptist. And then she goes home. That's the whole first trimester. Right? And that's where we are, and we're going to turn over to Matthew. So now she comes back home to Nazareth, three months pregnant. Now, the birth of Jesus, Matthew um, chapter 1, 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, mother Mary was betrothed to jo Joseph, before they came together, before there was any fully consummation of the marriage or sexual relationship between them, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just or righteous man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So Joseph is like, huh, Mary, what happened? And apparently, from this story, she told them what happened. And Joseph wasn't buying it. Right. This is God's child. Right. I thought you were a virtuous woman. So Mary, Mary responded, the bondservant of the Lord, saying yes to whatever fallout would come in a culture that if she is unrighteous and adulterous, on the one hand, she's already divorced, or on the other hand, she's stoned to death. And if she isn't stoned to death and isn't divorced, well, regardless of whether or not she's divorced or not, she will all through her life bear the shame of, you got pregnant on a wedlock in that culture. So Joseph is there. He's a, a righteous man, a just man. He's a God follower. And he's, I don't, I don't want to kill her. I'll, I'll give her a get and put her away quietly. We're not in Jerusalem. Maybe that'll be okay. 20 to 23. But while he thought about these things, he hasn't acted yet. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So Joseph's asleep and he's getting this in the dream. Joseph, son of, son, Joseph bar David, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So he gets all this in a dream. He gets a second witness to Mary's story, confirming her story. The child is of the Holy Spirit, just like Mary told you. More than that, remember this scripture? Behold the virgin, pregnant. She will bring forth a child and will call him Emmanuel. Now, that's quoted below, but he kind of quotes it above, and you shall call his name Yeshua which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation depending on how you read it. And he will save his people from their sins. And that actually puts points back to Isaiah 53 which we don't have time to go through today. So they're both confronted with what we started with in their thoughts by the angel. Mary says, Behold the servant, the bondslave of the Lord. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. I don't know if it was that night, but soon thereafter. And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Yeshua. Now that's an interesting last, um, last verse because I get into conversations with someone and there's a Catholic um, tradition that Joseph was really old and had children of his own before he married Miriam and that he never had sexual relations with Miriam and she never had further children which I don't find biblical and for for two reasons. First, he did not know her until, which implies that she, he did know her at one point. And the second thing, when she brought for, forth, the, the Greek is literally, literal, when she brought forth her son, the firstborn one. So they could have dropped that entire, the Holy Spirit could have not included that if there was only one son. But he didn't. He put it in. So I bring all these things up so you can see the wonder of God's word, right? God makes prophecy. He gives us faith to believe the prophecy. And the prophecy becomes, as Hebrews 1 would say, Solid, the evidence of things unseen, right? The prophecy with faith is now a promise to us. And they act on it. Mary, the bondservant of the Lord, Joseph get up, got up and did what he was commanded. So this kind of tips a hat to 2 Peter 1.19. So we have a more... So we have the prophetic word now confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place. 
Mary and Joseph acted on the promise of the Davidic covenant, the promises of Isaiah, and submitted themselves to the Lord. Mary became pregnant. She brought forth a sinless child, Yeshua. And we're going to look at the child next week in all who he is, which is beyond just a typical child, right? And from that, God in his life moved to provide a salvation for all people, not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles also. He took all of our sin and paid for it on a Roman cross that we who believe will have forgiveness of sin. He is the guilt offering in place of our sins. So I, I leave you with a question. And there's two places I want you to consider this question. Which way do you respond to God? Do you respond like Ahaz? Or do you respond like Mary and Joseph? So with the gospel, the Ahaz response would be, hey, I'm a good person. I don't need that. But in fact, scripture tells us there is none good, no, not one. The Old Testament says the righteous man who does, there is not a righteous man who does good, who does not sin. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the mark. And some would say, well, I keep the commandments. But Romans tells us that the, the whole point of the commandments was to make us guilty before God. And some would say that I do good deeds. There's no amount of good deeds if, if a, someone who is a sinful rebel before God can do a good deed in God's estimation, there's no way to pay for something. If you're working towards it, God says, then you get the wages of death. But if you have faith to trust Christ's sacrifice, you have eternal life. But there's another place that I want you to consider this. That, that's for someone who does not currently have faith in Yeshua as their sacrifice. What's God's plan for the life that he gave you? Note I didn't say your life because he's bought that. How do you respond to God in the plans that he has for your life? Do you try to approach it like a has? No, I got my own plans my own way to go. I'm going to do this and this and this and, and your plans. Well, maybe we'll get to those, God. Or is your way of approaching God's plan for your life the bondservant of the Lord? Hineni. Lord, be it unto me as you said. So look at your life what does God want to do with you? We're looking at the wonder of what happened in first century, you know, 7 BC, 6 BC, with Mary and Joseph. There's a whole lot of history and a whole lot of prophecy that has been fulfilled since. When you look at all that prophecy says, there's no way that you can come to the conclusion that this just happened. As a matter of fact, there's a, an illustration that I, I heard recently I'll share with you. Um, and it, it statistically talks about eight of the Messiah 
major Messiah prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 60 major prophecies, 60, six, zero. For eight to be fulfilled, it's like taking this whole pile of silver dollars and you mark one with an X. And there's so many silver dollars that it would fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep, right? The statistic is one in a hundred quadrillion. That's one over one, 10 times, or one, one over one with 17 zeros after it, right? That's the chance that if you blindfolded a person and they dropped him somewhere in Texas and he reached down and pulled out the first coin, it had the mark. Statistically, with eight prophet, prophecies fulfilled, Jesus is the Messiah, and he did 60. Why don't you believe if you don't believe? 